Welcome to the podcast on fire on dangerous encounter first kind. Mr. Super Happy Fun Guy, Choi Hark has entered the chat and gives us the most nihilistic film of his career. My name is Kenneby, and with me for this examination of an early work of uh, Choi Hark's is Michael Scott of the A4E podcast. Hello, buddy. Hi, buddy. How are you today? Very good, very good. And uh, we're doing two Choi Hark movies in a row in separate episodes, mind you. But uh, we went from We're Going to Eat You... Communism, satire slash cannibal horror comedy mixture in a package that was okay in spots, uneven in spots, not the definitive work of Choi Hawks, but uh, in a way, how could you avoid such a description, I suppose? Um, cannibal kung fu horror comedy directed by the guy who brought you Peking Opera Blues and uh, Once Upon a Time in China, Knock Off Black Mask 2. So you just gotta watch it at least once just to see what the sights and sounds are about. And uh, But I would happily return to it. Uh, we're going to eat you. It's not a bad time. But uh, maybe it's difficult to sell people on Dangerous Encounter First Kind because uh, you, you can't spin it into something kooky or goofy. It's um, nihilistic. Bleak is... Uh, just uh, the start of it, I suppose. So. A bit of a bit of a whiplash, bit of a tonal whiplash going from "We're Going to Eat You" to this one. Um, there is, there is just no way. You know, I, I when we talked about "We're Going to Eat You," I kind of compared it to a Sam Raimi movie. I thought it felt very much in line with with sort of a Sam Raimi movie and made the the sort of thing that Raimi and and Choi Hawk are very similar directors, uh, but. This is, uh, I guess, Raimi's closest to this would be a simple plan, but uh, Raimi's never really made anything as as nihilistic as as this one. Yeah, it fits the sights and sounds of the Hong Kong film at the time, which we will get to, but uh, Choi Hak didn't stick to this, which we will also get to. Choi Hak um, realized that he should do a 180 after getting this out of his system, but we'll certainly get to that. We have some uh, background and stuff uh, for you and the film review, so we're, we're going to plow on and uh, f- uh, going to let you plug in a little bit. But uh, first of all, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, including this show, the back catalogue of Podcast on Fire, we are on our website, podcastonfire.com, and uh, on Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Radio, and wherever you find podcasts, as well as on social media, our discussion group on Facebook. Yes, we use Facebook. And we're available on Twitter, at Podcast on Fire. Just type in Podcast on Fire Network on uh, any common social media link uh, uh, app, I suppose, and uh, you'll get uh, to us. Uh, so... I'm going to keep it short and throw over to you. The A4E podcast, the, uh, the kids uh, should know by now, but uh, let's uh, give them a little plug of where to find you and uh, what you guys uh, do over there on A4E. Sure. Before I jump into that, I do want to thank you. I've been trying to collect some older Hong Kong laser discs on eBay, and I've been using SoGoodReviews.com to uh, to guide my way. So I uh, I appreciate having that resource out there. It's been You it's shouldn't been trust my handy. opinions, but... Thank you. Consider it the catalog rather than uh, uh, the, the the sort of um, thing to follow. And uh, the, maybe you and I sh- sh- share opinions of uh, older shitty Hong Kong movies uh, most of the time. I don't know. I, I think we're definitely closer. We're definitely closer in taste than not. So uh, I, I, I trust it. Like, as a, what as did a... Ken think of Shadow Cop starring YC <laughs> Lee? Like, uh, it, it's sitting here at 10 bucks uh, and uh, delivered for five or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I don't even bother looking up YC Lee movies. So uh, <laughs> I, oh, poor YC Lee. I just took a shot at him for no reason. Uh, action for everyone. Uh, A4E Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at A4E Podcast. We are hosted on uh, Spotify Podcast, but we're found anywhere podcasts can be found. Uh, we also have a Linktree, Linktree slash A4E Podcasts uh, or A4E Podcast. Uh, for those who don't know, we are an action oriented podcast. Uh, it's me, Liam O'Donnell. Donald and Vice Victus, uh, Liam being the director of Skylines, uh, and we uh, we talk action movies with a primary focus on direct-to-video, but lately we've been getting industry folks on uh, to talk about uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, so uh, at the time we're recording this, our most recent episode, we have uh, Charlie Yoon from Real Deal Action, who's worked with 8711, uh, doubled Donnie Yen in John Wick 4. Uh, so we had him on talking about his career, and it's a, it's a good time. Hong Kong so. actors being doubled? Why? I've never <laughs> heard of such a thing. He's got he's got some great stories about Donnie, too. Donnie is... Donnie is uh, Sounds like working with Donnie is exactly like what you'd expect it to be. You know, he wanted him to do this this thing because he was doubling him on Chasing the Dragon. And uh, I guess at one point, Donnie's like, do you want me to do it for you? If you if you want me to do it, I'll just come in and do it. And uh, and Cha's like, no, no, I, I got it. But uh, it's a it's a it's a good it's a good episode. I highly recommend people check it out. Well, good, good on you for attracting um, good people current people and you feed that into the action fandom the good action fandom that are quite uh, into the current john wick franchise and uh, i express that with such an enthusiasm that i just can't begin to appreciate at this point because i don't follow it that closely but you are feeding that uh, positive nature of uh, action film fandom which is very important now that uh, action films are technically being shot uh, in a clear manner again not all across the board but the john wick films are an example of uh, you can make action in a somewhat old school way at least with clarity you don't need to burn it up to get the audience's attention and uh, box office receipts uh, prove that you know it's not dull old style that uh, chad and all those guys are performing for us so uh, good on them and good on you for feeding that uh, enthusiasm back into the community well, and and I would contend that from a talent level, the action film industry is better than it's ever been in history. And I know I know Hong Kong film fans are going to immediately roll their eyes at that. What I, I'm not saying that the movies are better, but what I'm saying is the talent level, the talent of the stunt people, the talent of the second unit directors is better than it's ever been because the people doing it now are all the people that grew up on those Hong Kong movies. And they're allowed to execute it in, in that technical manner you know what i mean I, I'm, I'm not blaming paul greengrass f- but I'm, i don't prefer that dissing style of his in the action scenes as well and and it's good that someone can say no it's supposed to look like that it's going to be very exciting and just trust us and we'll deliver the film and we'll deliver money to you hence john wick 4 Yep. No, absolutely. That's that is a that is exactly a perfect way to describe it but uh, let's uh move on to uh, our little music break and uh, if you know the movie it's quite easy to pick out uh, what uh, fi- what the uh, film music you should play it's not an original composition from dangerous encounter first kind but uh, an original composition from good old boys goblin uh, like uh, in uh, our previous review we're, co- we're we're going to eat you 
they uh, lifted uh, some uh, familiar cues from Suspiria. When it came time to uh, put together the uh, the musical landscape of Dangerous Encounter First Kind, and a little film called Dawn of the Dead had been released, with great music included in it. And that's uh, what you're going to hear now, because that's what Choi Hak paints Dangerous Encounter First Kind with, in a big bad way. So as the type and we'll be right back. And welcome back in the movie review of this uh, episode. Only one, but there's a plentiful background information to give you. And it all connects to Dangerous Encounter First Kind, aka Don't Play With Fire, by Choi Hak from 1980. And plot goes as follows. Three friends out for a night of fun in daddy's car accidentally kills a pedestrian. The only witness is a young, psychotic girl who decides to blackmail them. She forces the boys to participate in her misanthropic deeds, which eventually brings them into some Japanese banknotes for 800 million yen that belongs to some illegal arms dealers. And they want him back. So they're in, they're in trouble. This, as I said, is also known as Don't Play With Fire. I believe it's an export title. This film was dubbed into English. So when Choi Hak made his goofy cannibal uh, movie, We're Going to Eat You, disguised as a satirical allegory for communism, audiences weren't running to the cinemas. And that was in the spring of 1980. However, at Christmas, the same year, this was released uh, at the end of the year, a dive into raw and violent social commentary turn heads to the degree where Dangerous Encounter First Kind ended up being the 33rd most profitable mo- profitable movie of the year. And that is possibly a Hong Kong and Western films or foreign films combined. So it is possible that amidst the local films, Don't Play With Fire, Dangerous Encounter actually was closer to the top 10 of that year. So it, it turned heads. Uh, after receiving a ban on the first edit that was submitted, however... Choi Hak had to put together new footage and a story that wasn't as critical of the vibes and moods of then current Hong Kong society. So he took his youngsters from amateur bombers, terrorists, that stumble upon a box of uh, Japanese currency bank drafts and facing grave consequences as a result. He took that and uh, combined it with, uh, let's just say, his uh, his uh, acting and filmmaking pals to uh, and they represented this addition of a new element in in a second edit of the film where the special branch of the Hong Kong police are looking to bust a weapons smuggling ring headed by foreign mercenaries and that includes uh, actor Bruce Baron and the youngsters in question accidentally runs over a man instead of uh, being amateur bombers and that is witnessed by this nihilistic and cynical character that is played by the outstanding Lin Chen Chi to, to sum it up really early here first edit Choi Hak's uh, characters were amateur bombers and terrorists and anarchists Not that wasn't going to fly that wasn't going to be released so he had to Include some Interpol stuff, some Hong Kong police stuff, and reshoot the core plot of the kids where they accidentally run over a man. So that's uh, an interesting angle in itself for the film that it it wasn't allowed to be. 
in the state that Choi Haken produces uh, first uh, in the state that they submitted it. Uh, it was more responsible to have professional law enforcement versus professional smugglers with cynical kids caught in between. That was acceptable for the second edit. But in Choi Hak's words, the added plot was now very strange. And the audience has had too many characters to deal with. Uh, this is the way I saw it first. So it may not have been presented in the manner that he aimed. But this dark lingering effect um, still remains. And without revealing your full opinion... You know, is 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 the released version versus the director's cut? Are, are they so different to the point where one becomes entirely unwatchable and invalid, or you think they both uh, have val- have valid points as films? I suppose I don't think they're so different that 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 one becomes invalid. Uh, but I do think it's it's a little surprising to me just how how much more nihilistic the unreleased version, I guess we'll divert sake of purpose. We'll call it director's cut. Uh, how much more nihilistic the, and how much more thematically cohesive uh, the director's cut is. But I still think the theatrical cut has plenty to say. And, and it, the one big change when, you know, I'll talk about this more when we get into our full thoughts, but that the one big change between the two versions, I think really radically alters the movie uh, in a way that makes them both interesting, but they, I think both have sort of very different themes because of that change. We'll uh, talk some specifics uh, as we go on here, but um, if we uh, go back a little, go back a little bit to Choi Hak's words uh, on the film, because he's been interviewed about this. He, he talked in, in a DVD interview with a French, uh, with the French label HK video about the, his view of where the Hong Kong film industry was finding itself, uh, how it was being positioned. Uh, and he didn't consider like the end of the 70s and early 80s as a high point or anything. It, the, the genres we all know and love, whether Kung Fu or romance, they, he wasn't considering all of that a high point. It had probably done its thing in his, uh, in his eyes. But there was a transition happening from old school filmmaking and uh, older genres making waves to a socially conscious new style, uh, a, a new wave from uh, new directors coming out of television, coming from being educated abroad, being again young and having new ideas of uh, how to film, what to film, what themes to present. And that caught the eyes of people in charge of film. And uh, Choi Hak felt coming into into film, uh, you know, he was educated, of course, but he came into film and felt like he was starting from scratch. There was a blank slate uh, present here as he started to make films, and he, he let his mind go where it took him, whether it was the style and flavor of the day or not. So Choi Hak didn't throw himself into the Hong Kong new wave, the socially conscious Hong Kong new wave immediately because his first film was a wuxia horror mystery the butterfly murders his second film was this kung fu cannibal horror comedy so he didn't do what uh, directors like an hoi did or alex chung or patrick tam immediately he was aware of what the new way was you know be uh, de- designed to be in the eyes of uh, people in charge of film as uh, as these uh, gritty films started to be made but uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't ready yet until Dangerous Encounter First Kind uh, came about. And he readily admit that uh, 
that uh, he was expressing anger through movies. So he wasn't happy-go-lucky. He had witnessed society take on this vague direction, as he said. Uh, and especially as we close in on negotiation between Great Britain and China regarding the 1997 handover. And uh, movies to him and storytelling was a way of kicking up dust. They, they were designed to talk of uh, the current environment being Hong Kong society. And... Uh, Feeling segregation to a degree between Chinese heritage and English language. English language was uh, prominent. Not everybody in Hong Kong were able to speak English. Um, uh, obviously, knew Chinese, but not everybody in Hong Kong were able to speak English. So he felt like one of many persons in society asking the questions of, uh, you know, what can we do? What can we do to affect our future if we can't do anything? So that anger and uncertainty made it into new wave filmmaking but also into in particular this uh, film you know we, we have symbolic scenes in the film at a graveyard for instance where they look out uh, over this uh, this vista and this horizon and you see nothing but death so it's heavy-handed i know it sounds like it's heavy-handed but uh, i think it's coming from a a young angry honest place it's not uh, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's opinion, of course, I'm asking here, but uh, to me, it never came off as out-of-control, childish anger the way uh, he does it in his films and certainly in films like Both People. And, um, you know, so it, the Hong Kong New Wave, I don't know how much experience you have watching them, but the Hong Kong New Wave, it was compelling to me and mature rather than childish nihilism, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I I know exactly what you mean, and and I agree completely. It definitely does feel, you know, it feels very much, you know, and this I'm not the first person to make this comparison. You know, it feels very much like the the new Hollywood wave too, where where those movies came in and felt very mature and very assured in a way that uh, you know didn't come across like petulant children. Uh, so yeah, I agree completely. At one point during all of these, this thinking and witnessing what was happening in society, uncertainty, as uh, they uh, trekked uh, ever so close to 1997. So at one point, he he read something specific that he fed into this film. He read a story in the newspaper about young people trying to make bombs, to make ruckus, uh, to burn down trucks and uh, and cars. Uh, and, and of course, Hong Kong had gone through turbulent times in prior decades with uh, riots in the 60s and so forth. So uh, this uh, wasn't the first time this uh, these rumblings uh, turned up in uh, Hong Kong and anything. But reading that story about these amateur bombers, I believe, this hit him as this was a sign of a generation feeling they have nowhere to go, so they move forward through destruction. And he wanted to state through the movie that this is a path we're led onto in this uncertain society. No wonder. The, the ground is shaky. So this leads to violent tendencies, um, cold tendencies as well. So that's what he fed into the plot that wasn't allowed to be released ultimately uh, but again more of that uh, as we go along here so after the film was delivered he shot it with uh, this plot in mind the first plot in mind the company photo scene film production presumably got a letter from an approval body or census because there was no rating system in hong kong but uh, you still had to get an approval and that came back and they said the film is banned based on questionable uh, content. And they cited that the portrayal of youths uh, like this is a betrayal to the youth of the actual society. Portraying them like this is negative towards our society, and that can't be seen, it isn't allowed, it's banned. So, Choi Hak went into reshooting and restructuring mode. 
So the, presumably there was a little bit of money uh, still left or they received additional funds to go out and reshoot and restructure the film to balance the negative onto some kind of positive. To convert the anarchism of the bomb making use into events leaning more towards legal or accidental again because they hit someone with, with a car. So the restructure portion of the production now had to find solutions and presumably quick too. So, as, so in his word a strange plot was added about Interpol being in Hong Kong trying to solve a drugs and weapons smuggling case. The cops represented the control of the society that we've got this. The cops have bad guys to take care of. And that took attention away from the kids. Um, but again, the, the bombing aspects had to be deleted. But still, they found that balance of, uh, uh, of law being a greater part of the second edit of Dangerous Encounter first kind, the director's version. So having having them, you know, prefer, you know, the professionals versus the uh, professional soldiers, the mercenaries, that could be more acceptable, and ultimately it was more acceptable. It was eventually released with with this uh, reshot footage and restructure in place. So um, they were present, these soldiers, in the original cut, but uh, they injected the drug smuggling plot, as I said, and that meant. Uh, extending the presence and plotting of the soldiers as well and uh, it expanded matters but it also meant as he said all of a sudden the movie was overcrowded and that wasn't the intention in um, in the beginning so uh, there, there was a compromise of sorts uh, made here and uh, may, maybe this question will come up but, but if i had not read read any of this and just went into this movie called i would not have spotted that this seems like two movies because it, it it's quite well put together when all is said and done. It doesn't feel it it, it doesn't feel like Godfrey Ho. It, it doesn't feel like Godfrey Ho, but I will admit that that I had a little bit of difficulty um, kind of tracking everything. Oh, oh yeah, you, well, you do that, but it it doesn't yeah. feel like oh they like, like this film stock doesn't change all of a sudden. Like, whoa, whoa, this looks newer. No, definitely not, definitely not. It, it looks it looks the same throughout, but especially in sort of the first act. It's a, it's a little tough to figure out who all the players are because yeah there's you know there's wholesale scenes uh, that are different in 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 the two versions it's you know and we'll I'm sure we'll talk about that more but it, it really is quite surprising how much difference there is between the two versions um, you know there's the whole kind of subplot with the yeah with the soldiers is just it's very different uh, in, in the theatrical release for sure. There was pressure, of course, so he didn't have a year to sort of rethink matters. He had to deliver a film. They were they were ready to deliver a film. They delivered a film. But now all of a sudden they had to go back. So there, there was no time for him, as he talked about this, to ponder alternate, less strange scenarios, scenarios because the investors were waiting for their return because you got to get audiences to watch this film. You can't stall it as you craft uh, something different uh, versus um, the things that weren't allowed. So uh, it was released, and the industry, in his words, were quite um, they, were, they were quite shocked at the darkness of the story and that no one is really good in the film. There's no heroes here. There was also this surprise, uh, pe- because people knew Choi Hak personally, and certainly some would know his two first films, that there was no indication that, that he was going this dark. They were very surprised, uh, industry and friends, I suppose, that this would come out of him at all. 
But uh, Charlie Huck didn't think that style and raw behavior on film was surprising coming from him because he had uh, been in New York making documentaries. He's seen, he had seen all kinds of people in society yeah, of different social statuses and so forth. You know, poor people, criminals, uh, teenagers walking on the streets, uh, seemingly aimless without uh, hope. So he had these images in him, you know. Uh, he hints in the interview that we watched that his editor felt an unease assembling the film or didn't know what to make of it. So Choi Hak added editorial choices of his own and the process became more confusing than cohesive. Uh, so he uh, he found himself putting in discarded shots, for instance, uh, while they sort of went back and forth. And uh, he, he described it as kind of two nervous persons butting heads, uh, trying to get in sync. Uh, and they'd made it made it a strange time uh, it made it into a strange movie in his uh, view but it seemed like it was it wasn't easy to put this together for the final release version or anything as we said it he he had to go in there and there, there, there he had actors he had his actors still but he needed to find people quick to fill in the spots of uh, of the interpol of the hong kong police so he had to call in favors from other directors to appear in the film or other producers uh, and uh, industry people so you see people like john shum who, who is an actor he's a comedic actor but he's also a, a uh, production person you see uh directors like long po chi you know his directing friends had to play a role in this uh, and that meant he also had to play a role in this uh, so you can see Choi hak at the beginning of the released uh, release version uh, playing uh, one of the persons in the meeting and then I believe he's one of, uh, well, he's the same character that guards the informant that gets murdered in the shower during the gym at that point. Um, so you can see Choi Hak quite uh, clearly uh, fill in the gaps that were needed for Dangerous Encounter First Kind to be uh, to be released at all. Um, he also talks about uh, in his uh, summary in that interview we watched that people have trouble facing reality, uh, but uh, the story in the movie, as real as it feels, it isn't... Uh, it isn't from reality, it isn't a documentary, but he wanted the audiences to think about the film and their reality in a way to create a balance of sorts. And normally, films are there to make audiences happy and comforted, but he didn't have that aim. He did. He wanted it to be on front streets, but in the end, and especially in retrospect, watching reactions to the film made Choi Hak understand or realize that you know, his audiences, uh, they didn't want this necessarily. Yeah, Yes, they came and watched this based on the shock value of a rep, but they, they, they wanted different things. Uh, they uh, wanted uh, a choice of seeing uh, something happier, something they were, were more willing to see. Because Hong Kong people were a people that survived turbulent decades, uh, so they're certainly not uh, weak and want to escape, but... He, he believes ultimately that they believe in optimism, but at the same time have trouble admitting darkness. And what it led to is Choi Hak changing tack totally. He went from dark to, I believe his next film was a comedy, All the Wrong Clues. And then he started to explore speci- special effects in uh, Hong Kong cinema entertainment and eventually set the trend for Kung Fu in the 90s. So he stopped exploring reality to a bit. He didn't think that he, he didn't want to subject them to this... Uh, anger movie after movie he i think uh, he felt he did a little bit of damage to be honest <laughs> and uh, maybe didn't want to play that game of well i shoot what i what i like and what i think but i don't want to run into the sense of body again this was hard 
I don't want to go back and like you know call my friends. Be be in my movie. You made your movie, yeah, but you got to be in my new movie of the film I made. You you know you don't want to go through all that. So I, I believe it, it is an honest uh, and mature, I suppose, uh, determination, especially in retrospect, that uh, anger can't uh, stay with you, and you and you shouldn't really subject persons to that on a constant basis when because they pay their ticket price and they buy their popcorn and they uh, they want to shut out the world for a little bit so I mean it's not a great uh, mature thing to say but good on him I suppose for being aware yeah no it, it is it is fascinating to me that you know he becomes I mean Choi Hawk's just such a such an interesting director because his career has gone in so many interesting varied ways you know that it's hard to believe sometimes that the same guy directed so many of, of the same movies, you know, that this, the guy that directed this is the same guy that directed black mask too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I was thinking high tech special effects spectacles, like flying swords of, of tiger gate or, or the detective D movies, you know? And also it's weird. I mean, I know people change, but it's weird that somebody that, has kind of this this angry of a, an attitude is is then now directing you know things like battle at lake changin you know changin so it's just it's 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 interesting to go back and see young Choi hawk versus uh current Choi hawk it's still very strange to realize this came out of him at all young or old uh, it just doesn't you have trouble sort of finding a place for it and i'm not saying that's bad it just sticks out so much more Despite being a filmmaker that has directed a number of movies with a number of moods in them and uh, with a set of maturity baked into films like Once Upon a Time in China 1 and 2. But it still feels strange that this came out of him, especially um, considering the graphic violence and um, the tone. It, it feels much more like something you'd expect from, like, say, Ringo Lamb or somebody like that. Like, it, it doesn't. It, there's certainly plenty of Holly or of Hong Kong directors that made movies like this although none of them with Choi's uh, abilities um but yeah it just doesn't fit in his career it's 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 interesting and it's been hard to um to see it to make your determination because it was buried for so long on laserdisc and every dvd came out wasn't english friendly there are ways to watch it um in uh, in unofficial in an unofficial manner but we'll, we'll get to that but uh, we, we talked of the director's version versus the theatrical version and we, we don't put up this podcast with visual aids so i'm not going to go through all the differences obviously but i wanted to mention just a few differences of note that occur in each version of the film uh, they approved the theatrical version with um, with cut and then added footage ran 91 minutes while the original submitted film the director's version ran 95 minutes uh, and uh, in the theatrical version we open uh, after the credits uh, with the the mouse torture uh, and then we cut to this interpol meeting with Choi hawk and his filmmaking pals the the credits say that ronnie Yu is in this but i I've, i have not yet spotted him because i have a good idea of what Ronnie Yu looks like but I didn't spot him in, in this footage it's mainly Lung Po Chi, Choi Hak and John Shum that I spotted out of the the filmmaking pals that gathered up for uh, for the new for the new footage you know yeah I didn't notice Ronnie Yu either uh but uh yeah he's in there somewhere I'm sure but all of this sets up an undercover cop or informant angle and uh, he is eventually murdered by a soldier and this is uh uh, completely uh, new footage, uh, not present in the director's version. They they share scenes, 
but uh, they redub dialogue to fit the new plot and get rid of the unacceptable old plotting. So, for instance, in the beginning, two characters run down a set of stairs, two of the kids. And I say kids, they're young adults. And there's dialogue in the original version about uh, uh, about uh, Paul. The character Paul has built a bomb. He's done it. And they they they, they obviously they're running to Paul's, Paul's apartment. Uh, but that uh, footage is... Uh, is still in the theatrical version, but there's different dialogue dubbed in in its place instead. But uh, what follows in the original version is a distinct scene where these uh, excited characters about uh, running to Paul's apartment uh, because he's done it. He's done the thing. Uh, he ge- Paul gives us a walkthrough of what is built, which is a bomb, and how to detonate a bomb. And then these uh, these three friends enter a cinema to, and try and find a safe spot to set it off uh, without casualties. They run away from the scene and then giddily thinks back on what uh, what went down. But like they're celebrating, man, uh, which is so disturbing. Uh, but the celebration is interrupted by the character of Wan Chu who comes out of the shadows. She comes out and says, I recognize your school uniforms. So this was a scene that was only in the director's version had to go this whole business of building a bomb. So the reshoots involved setting up a subplot of uh, the kids hitting a man with a car, an accident, that is witnessed by the character Wan Shu. And the news cast on the radio that follows, that is in the bo- is in both versions, in the printing shop, that is changed to, re- changed to reflect a man who was run over last night, uh, but the band version instead reports on the cinema bombing. So that's an example of uh, scenes that are in both versions, but being a post- dubbed film, they can change the dialogue uh, accordingly. So uh, the, the original uh, newscast uh, on the radio talks about uh, this might uh, lead to a gangster war, these bombings, eyewitnesses can call a tip hotline and the public are urged not to keep explosives at home as it's a violation to the, tu- to the tune of getting imprisoned for 27 year- 25 years. So there, there you have different examples of what had to go, what was shot and inserted uh, instead of uh, to to set off the new story involving the youths. Uh, so they they uh, they paint, you know it wasn't a rushed job or anything. They uh, they went in there and uh, changed uh, accordingly and uh, in a way that felt uh, logical and in a way that would. Uh, that would mean scenes could be kept in. So uh, change the dialogue uh, on the radio or people running fast away from camera or so therefore there's off-screen dialogue that you can change. So he had that luxury. Uh, some further example, Law Leeds' character is uh, seen requesting the file on the bombing accident. Uh, this is only in the band version because that plot line had to be scrubbed. Uh, there's a scene where the boys and went to they get together that is shared in um, by the two versions but there's newly dubbed dialogue yeah, that has her referring to a hit and run accident rather than the bombing uh, so uh, part of the reshoots for the theatrical version uh, also include uh, that uh, we, we have a scene where an animal carcass is found on a car with a note in the trunk or on it uh, placed by this uh, psychotic young lady there as a threat to the boys that she means business uh, but in the director's cut, uh, they extend the bomb plotting here. Instead, we have a small scene where where a cop stops the character of Paul who built the bomb and calls him Bomb Kid, and he kind of gets rattled. Like, what? Does he know? Does he know? It seems like a very offhand thing to say, like Bomb Bomb Kid. Oh, there is a Bomb Kid. Uh, but he he's asked to go away because they found the bomb. Paul goes to the crowd that has gathered up, and he spots the bomb with a note attached to it saying, "You free." 
beware, the beware of the bomb. And so that's they have to do a different threat. Kind of creative, I suppose. Uh, they're very psychotic, I suppose. Just instead of the bomb, we'll just have her uh, off screen. They discover it, place a, a big old piece of roadkill. It looks like on that car. They want small alterations. They had to go into production, Michael, to set up stuff. So it wasn't just a case of cutting and redubbing. They had to set up new scenes and new props and new action scenes, to be honest, because as primitive as the hit and run accident is, that is a piece of action. So they had to go into production uh, properly. It really is a full reworking. You know, you don't typically see two different versions of a movie that are. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want people who haven't seen both of them to think that they're like wildly different. We're not talking, you know, just complete. We're not talking like the Superman Richard Donner cut here, but it is a very thorough reworking of uh, and, and just how many plot threads had to get reworked to make the theatrical release even remotely consistent. You know, like I said, I had a hard time following it initially, but after seeing the director's cut and realizing how much they had to change, it really is quite astonishing that the, the theatrical works as well as it does. And that those changes make as much sense as they do. You know, even some of the scenes of the bombings and stuff, which feel a bit random in the theatrical, but it still works uh, in that movie. You know, I think it helps too that he still had access to his main cost. I don't think Law Leach reshot anything. Uh, but uh, he still had access to the kids, which helps. So it wasn't just Choi Hak and friends making a new plots or anything. So I think that helps uh, to maintain a, a good consistency, I suppose. Um, and, and that allowed for the new plot of the hit and run accident. Uh, so, and finally, in the scene where the boys have taken refuge at, uh, at the cemetery, you see a piece of extended dialogue in the director's version after the character of Along notes a gravestone uh, with a picture of a child on it. And his friend Cow uh, says to him that uh, he could have gone in any number of ways, a car accident uh, or maybe an explosion. Jokingly, he says that um, and, uh, may, and refers to the fact that maybe one of uh, their friends, Paul's uh, toilet bombs, uh, killed this kid. So they had to remove uh, things like that. But still, that scene could uh, be in there. They just had to remove like 10, 15 seconds of, uh, of those references. So again, they went through this to make sure it was all... Um, all acceptable and uh, thus it was released to um, I'm not sure a claim but certainly audience interest um, was there to a, to a quite a distinct degree so we've reached the movie review uh, portion of this we've set up that this is quite a nihilistic and anger angry film but uh, how does it come off in the end as we watch both versions uh, it, does it have anything good to say or is it just and anger for the sake of it. Well, let me hand over to Michael for a short opinion, first of all, of a Dangerous Encounter, first kind. I don't know that it's anger for the uh, just for the sake of it, but it certainly doesn't have anything good to say. I mean, it does not. I should say it doesn't have anything optimistic to say. This is this is one of both versions, one of the most nihilistic movies uh, that I have ever seen. That being said, I think the impact of it is is undeniable. You know, we, we were talking yesterday we were joking that 
uh, I had to take a break between watching the two versions and watch another movie because it was it was honestly it was too much. Like, like, honey, me. I'm gonna go into the shower and cry for 30 minutes, but it's okay. It's just uh, the, the shit that Ken sent over, so it's fine. <laughs> it, it put me. It definitely put me in a really bad headspace, which is is fine. I mean, that's what it's supposed to do. But that that is a testament to how effective Choi Hawk is in in this film. You know, it, it, and the filmmaking just from a technical level. It's still a Choi Hawk film. Like the filmmaking is is still so confident and assured throughout all of this. Uh, he's very clearly, as he does does quite a bit in, in "We're Going to Eat You Too." He's very clearly filling that Jello Argento vibe on this. There there are several scenes in this that have a real Jello vibe in the way he's using his colors and stuff. But then, of course. It changes as the movie goes on to become much more of a what we'd expect from a Hong Kong movie. You know, the, the climax is a a pretty terrific sort of shootout kind of almost heroic bloodshed type shootout, uh, but without any of the romanticism of of a heroic bloodshed shootout and should point out uh ching satung is the action director on this and and is doing a tremendous job on this one. He was in demand as a upcoming uh, martial arts choreographer. So it's really nice to see that these people were needed and contacted and uh, committed to putting their touches on uh, on a modern, gritty, urban uh, action scape, you know, so um, uh, landscape, I should say, so, which is really cool. So it's good of you to point that out. They weren't improvising this stuff. They had a professional here to um, to stage. You, as for my short opinion, through images uh, such as a mouse being tortured, a brief shot of a doll being run over in the rain, and all set in Hong Kong surroundings devoid of devoid of any bright light or color, Chorak is not messing around when establishing darkness in uncertain, turbulent times. I think he skillfully uh, weaves the threads together. Uh, the, the theatrical version is a little bit busy, but you get a hold of it uh, eventually into this, and he weaves it together into a dark, very violent social commentary. I guess it feels more real because it's everyday characters who are who are headed into this situation and can't get out. But they also look deep inside these kids at Hong Kong society as opportunistic via the legal route. So they stir up dust and then there's a chance to make money. But they're they're not optimistic, as you said. They're very pessimistic character characters, and it all comes full circle in the bloody cemetery finale. It certainly it's low budget but it manages to make its point awfully well by not holding back it's uh i winced throughout the film through uh via the animal cruelty it's probably the finale where i winced the most it's very surprising um the way violence is dished out at points uh, which we'll we'll might discuss specifically or keep it uh, spoiler free i don't know um so, so yeah I, I don't know how sort of enamored or familiar you are with what came out of the Hong Kong new wave necessarily it's not a section of Hong Kong films uh, uh, late 70s early 80s that a lot of us have that a lot of us have uh, binged or watched on repeat but it certainly matches what I like about that era the tone of the piece uh, aiming the camera onto real locations uh, gray apartment buildings uh, rundown environments but also spicing it up with as you said like evocative colors and it all combines for this uh, era specific grit as I usually say that is very hard to to um, replicate in a different filmmaking climate and society this is very era specific because feelings emotions 
poured onto the screen and it looks that way technically because of that reason uh the the, the hong kong new wave i don't know how easy it is to summarize but uh, it was more socially conscious and filmmaking felt more real because of it um you know these filmmakers turn into commercial filmmakers quite quick and hoy after both people and the likes you know and and that was a success granted it's in the criterion collection by the way both people uh, and patrick tam made a uh, uh, made different genres as well he made uh, this uh, wuxia film called the sword after making nomad and uh, things like that so it, it's very short this era so i don't know if you ever pursued or got got this um uh, interpretation of uh, what the Hong Kong new way was like or if you like that notion of Hong Kong cinema being angry for a couple of years before heading into zoo and heading into project a and things like that so what do you remember about that yeah i i haven't spent as much time in it as i should have for sure i've seen the boat people and and i thought that was tremendous but uh you know I... like cops and robbers have you seen that by the way of alex chung uh movie that's a very uh, classic uh, new wave joint no alex chung is a big blind spot for me that's that's actually he's on the list of directors that i need i need to plug uh i need to plug that blind spot because you did that you did that director series and i honestly i didn't listen to it because i hadn't seen any of the movies and i'm like damn i really need to get on this and 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 check out some of these because he's a, he's a big blind spot for me i unfortunately like a lot of hong kong film fans you know for the most part uh it starts in 1986 for me and, sure. and so there's you know you got some exceptions like long arm of the law that i've seen and love which i do think fits into this vibe uh extremely well too in terms of this sort of nihilistic angry uh but but it's definitely it's definitely a gap in my hong kong film knowledge it, it's easier to get a hold of um movies now versus then and also most of us are willing to share if no new transfers are available that uh, yeah i had the ld rip and it's very it's very watchable and all of that so uh, uh but but yeah it, it's a it's a fascinating thing for me to to, to still experience and uh, learn off but uh, talking some specifics here in in the opening scene um in the apartment some very uncomfortable close-ups of the environment as his camera tracks through that apartment it looks very uh, delicate and attractive but it isn't at the same time and uh, he's gonna make a squirm by having a character i don't think it's the actress i don't think anyone would like to do this uh, necessarily um he's going to sort of manifest pessimism and nihilism and straight out the evil by having the character push a uh, she keeps a uh, mice in her apartment and a cat and for fun to feel something she pushes a needle into a mouse's head and then watches it watch it watches it squirm in full close-up for us and that is of course sadly not faked at all so that's probably when a large percentage of the audience is going to bail on the film here yeah yeah, absolutely. It's it's you know talk about announcing your thesis from the opening scene. I mean, though. it's I heavy mean, rainfall just, as well. So yeah, it's like lightning storms and attractive colors. Which okay, cool, cool, technical showcase, and then this happens as well. Yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely took me. It definitely took me off guard. Um, 
you know, and, and there's another scene of animal cruelty that, that was even worse that, that I actually had to like stop for a second. I had to pause the movie for a second. Um, I, I had forgotten about it. Otherwise I would have flagged it for you big time. I had actually forgotten about a, a cat in all likelihood met a very, very painful uh, demise um, in this one. So, so yeah, be, beware. This movie has a, a actual animal cruelty. There's no chance it's going to appear uncut in markets like the UK. So, uh, so if this ever gets a, a boutique label release in the UK, prepare for um, for censors to do their thing, and probably rightly so. This is not particularly acceptable. The anger can be felt in other places in the film, but this is their choices back then, and it's a thing of the time. And uh, you you'll deal with it, accept uh, it as a thing at the time or not. It's very unpleasant though, to to watch. Well, and he does make the cat in particular uh, kind of an important metaphor, or not a, necessarily even a metaphor, but a, a thematic thing because he keeps cutting back to the cat uh, as this cat is slowly decaying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The character we don't need to wait to mention it. The character wants you throws the cat out of the window and onto. Uh, barbed wire a few stories below and the various close-ups of the cat that don't think is like this puppet cat that they operate um it looks like they um they had that cat go through hell as it says shrieks right into the camera in just pain and then uh, as you said is left there to to rot um yeah yeah, and as 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 everything kind of descends, you know, you can almost keep time on how long the movie takes place by him cutting back to this decaying cat body, which obviously then also comes full circle uh, in terms of, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but uh, let's just say that barbed wire fence comes full circle uh, later on in yeah, the movie. Effectively so. Um, it, it's, a, it's a gnarly image um, that sticks with you, but uh, it's... Uh, yeah, the barbed wire in itself, uh, that danger just a few uh, stories below. But uh, uh, so, wow, what an opening. But uh, these uh, unknown young actors that are then take center stage that uh, easily slide into this image of uh, young adults without it being phony is re- represents very effective casting. I've seen her in a few Shaw Brothers films, Lin Chen Chi playing Wan Chu, who's, who's obviously the breakout star, if you were to single out anyone in this film. She had not been used in this manner at all. I saw her in Spiritual Boxer, in a very forgettable uh, female role. She was in the Shaw Brothers movie Snake Prince with uh, T. Long. It's a fantasy piece. And she, she doesn't look like this breakout star in all, at all. And here, Choi Hak finds this actress who can do ominous and feels like she could uh, just project power and fright without saying anything and you you kind of believe that she is uh, pessimism represented times a thousand she clearly doesn't care and is also awfully capable of uh, setting things in motion she's out of control but a very capable out of control psychotic and she is uh, really tremendous like she's this image that sticks with you after the film is done yeah, the various close-ups of her and uh, yeah the, it was always her that stuck uh, with me uh, outside of the violent images you know yeah well and it's such an interesting contrast because she is i mean she's incredibly pretty 
you know, she's she's got a very girl next door look to her. Uh, you could almost see her in like romantic comedies or something. And then she's doing these just absolutely horrifying, terrible things with no emotion, just just very little emotion shown on her face. Um, it, it's it's such a, an aesthetic contrast that that. Like I agree with you. She sticks with you. She is definitely the she's definitely the standout of the movie uh, above, you know, outside of what the filmmaking, which I think is the real standout. But she, uh, the actors, she is the standout because she just sticks with you. It, it all means, by the way, that there's an eye here to make a production element like her pop as well we we talked of how how the fi- uh, how the film is uh, how the film is lit and how it how, how it's literally filmed so there's an eye here to catch her in exactly the way we described it isn't random it isn't pure luck if i were to sort of speak for Choi hike without knowing what the casting process was like he or someone saw that i, I think i can shoot her this way i think she'll fit I, I saw somewhere, I can't remember, somewhere in my research, he said that he cast her because she, her face is cat-like, and he liked that that angular nature of, of her face, which again, you know, cats being kind of a, a, a theme in this. It, it makes sense. Yeah, he certainly knows how to shoot her, and, and the camera just loves her despite all these horrible things that she's doing in this movie. Yeah, no hysterics, no amateur sort of choices in the acting. I think that extends to the kids as well. These young actors, I'm not very familiar with them. I've seen a couple of them in during this era, but they're really not actors that I can track off the top of my head where they went. I think some of them might have short filmographies as well. But as I said, they aren't phony images of of the out-of-control youths or anything, you know, they they do fit uh, fit the mold, and uh, I like the actor who plays um, Paul, for instance, uh, uh, Albert Au, and they, they all come from different social status. His um, he's a, he, his parents are rich, presumably. They certainly live in a lovely flat, and he is like he's not enthusiastic about anything, and he has built this uh, bomb in the director's version. Kind of just because, maybe just to feel something, to do something. And even at a later point in the film where Wan Chu has called him at his home as part of a blackmail tactic to get the boys to work with her uh, because she knows their secret. He says to his parents who asks him, who was that on the phone? Who was that girl? Oh, that's a girl I raped. And he says it's so matter of fact, no emotion on his face. He's not even joke. He's, he's not even uh, um, communicating that he's joking or anything. And I think that speaks volumes of uh, that he's he's probably in the worst headspace out of all these three. No, definitely, definitely disaffected would definitely be, I think, the the word to to describe him. But 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 what's your view in general? Like, uh, do they are the center point of the film, and it does it become a believable part of the film? Uh, these uh, having cast uh, these young guys, these young girls. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's very, very believable. It's very authentic. And I guess this is a good point for me to say, I, I guess what I what I think the two the two most shocking differences between the versions to me is and the kids are all so good in both versions. But it's interesting to me that that in the theatrical, what you really have is a bit of a much more standard 
seduced by the dark side story where these these kids, you know, they have the hit and run, they panic, they try and hide it. Uh, Wan Shu blackmails them and then they kind of go down this path. So sort of thematically, the theme here is that the Hong Kong, no matter how innocent you are, Hong Kong will corrupt you. Right. It, you will be destroyed by this. But then you watch the director's cut and you realize what Choi Hawk was really trying to say is nobody is innocent uh, because these these fuckers are building bombs for fun, you know, and it, so it completely changes the tone of it, it makes it even more nihilistic of just not Hong Kong will destroy you, but essentially Hong Kong is already destroyed. There is no innocence. There is no virtue. There is no joy. All there is is disaffect ennui and violence and 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 you're right by the way even though some of them display a little bit of conscience like when they place the bomb in the cinema in the director's version it doesn't matter because they 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 have been very excited by the prospect they aren't shocked that paul has built this they they have looked forward to this uh, so there, there's no uh, there's no sympathy therefore present at all maybe one percent for like a second and they're 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 much more enthusiastic to uh, go along with Wan Shu in in the in the director's cut. It, it feels less like she's actually like actively blackmailing them, and more like she's just given them the opportunity to do stuff that they already want to do. It's a it's a much more hard hitting, you know. It's funny as hard hitting as the theatrical version is, and you would watch the theatrical and think, "Man, this movie cannot get any edgier, any harder." And then you watch the director's cut, and you're like, "Oh shit, no, it actually can. It can get a whole lot uh, harder." It really shocked me because I I didn't know what was excised specifically be, before I watched the director's version. I I'd seen the laser disc, which is uh, a cropped. Um, uh, cropped edition it's partially widescreen uh, cropped edition of the theatrical version naturally so, so i didn't know that this was uh, what they had to replace and that really shocked me to my core this is mean and i thought it was mean this is mean man I did, this this comes from deep-rooted pessimism that uh, doesn't seem manufactured necessarily the these are little emotional tags and beats that Choi Hark and his screenwriter had plucked out of what they feel and hear in society. And then sp- specifically reading that story, as we said, it took me by surprise and kind of rattled me, to be honest. And and it's not, it doesn't have to do with graphic stuff. That uh, were, it was just shocking that that's what they did instead. There's not a minute of sunlight, uh, you know, like uh, there's not a minute where you can come up for air in the director's version. You're just down there for the whole movie. I, I, I didn't make any notes that it felt contrived that they intersect with the plot of the soldiers. They happen upon the Japanese currency bank drafts and they try to cash them. Uh, I, I buy that they intersect with the likes of Bruce Barron during uh, one of their uh, chase sequences. They run into him as he uh, drives a car. Um, and I guess um, I, it's a bad critical note, I suppose, but uh, I, I did think about this quite a bit, that uh, they are running around so much, antagonizing so much, that no wonder they run into other ongoing um, trouble, deals, heists, and especially as they try to cash in on what they have encountered. 
no wonder it continues to spiral. So it uh, it feels a little bit busy in the theatrical version to sort out soldiers, cops, kids. The director's versions uh, version obviously uh, concerns only kids and soldiers for simplifying purpose. But but I didn't feel it was a contrivance necessarily um, after experiencing it and thinking about it a little bit that uh, it was just bound to happen that it was going to get worse and their greed uh, got the best of them too which is a cliched thing but um so but i, I think I've, I've gotten the impression that people think it's a little bit too busy and uh, that uh, the kids intersect with the soldiers and their backdrafts uh, make it a little bit too busy and that that's probably true but i didn't have trouble sorting out that laundry and i buy that they they would intersect with the wrong kind of people eventually. They weren't on their own little island making trouble. Yeah, and I think that's especially true in the director's cut. Um, that that it, it to me it makes sense. This is this is all a sort of they're all on a sort of hubristic path to oblivion, you know. And, and so it makes sense that I, I think if there's anything that I think is contrived, it's that the. Wan Shu and Tan are brother and sister. You know, that's the one part that feels a little bit contrived. Yeah, and- Lolit's uh, character plays a policeman. Uh, yeah. In the film. Even if it does feel contrived, isn't it wonderful that Lolit is just appears as the most natural character actor in the world? He wasn't this. It wasn't difficult to buy. That oh, it's a oh, it's a kung fu villain trying to act. Not at all. He was just made for character acting like this after having gained so much so much experience even being typecast for for a good decade i just uh, love seeing him out of Shaw brothers and seeing him do as well as he does yeah no i agree he's he's so and well and that's that's one of the other things that i think is interesting you know when they do the reshoots they add more cops and they but these are terrible fucking cops right like like they're not good and 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 Lole's character especially is is just really an awful, awful police officer, an awful person. He's a schlubby drunk kind of, you know, it just it, it's he but he's so good. It's so natural uh, to him and it feels so authentic and, and as contrived as I think their relationship is, it feels like an authentic relationship. There's a real animosity between the two of them. Uh, that that really is really effective, I think. He's also in uh, the Anhoi movie, a story of Vuviet with uh, Chai Fat, and equally appears uh, natural in that film. It, it isn't this uh, this uh, poor fit for the guy who either appeared for a full kung fu movie or turned up for the last ten minutes of it, which was awesome. But uh, you you wonder sometimes when you do so much samey work, how you're going to transition out of that. Eventually, Shaw Brothers is gonna uh, gonna end, and uh, we lose all those templates, presumably. And he just uh, went from strength to strength, you know, playing gangsters a lot of the time, a lot of the time, but doing so very dependently and uh, doing dramatic work along the way. He's in a movie called Queen of Temple Street. His last film, Glass Tears, was a good dramatic show showcase. So, I'm I'm just very happy to see him uh, do so well with uh, perhaps an undercooked role to a degree or an unlikable role, but it just feels. Um, he he just feels very skilled at um, ad- ad- adopting a character look and making it feel natural rather than paste it in and phony and all of that. Yeah, and without going wildly over the top too, you know. I, I mean, you can see somebody like and and 
this is in no way disparaging him because I love him. I adore him. But you could see somebody like Anthony Wong taking this character kind of way over the top. And and he doesn't in this. It's 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 underplayed as much as necessary to to fit this the theme of this movie. We we spoke a little bit about uh, them being um, careless, essentially these uh, kids, and they uh, they get deeper and deeper into the underworld, and they crosses they cross path with violence and all all the wrong people, and it uh, obviously is going to lead to a, a confrontation with uh, with the soldiers. So. Did it ever occur to you that you're you're, you're overdoing it, Joy? Like dial it back, or this this makes sense? The level of anger that he does from minute zero to minute ninety here, because it affected because it affected you. So it, you 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 might think that oh, what was the, he's overdoing his anger? Yeah, I don't think so. I think it ends the only way. I mean, if if I would say he's overdoing his anger, I would say it's at the start with the animal cruelty yeah. because. When you start a movie like that, you know, you kind of are already on notice that there's only one way this is going to end. Uh, and, and so I think it's appropriate. The escalation is is appropriate for the movie. I think it's appropriately, you know, apocalyptic, for lack of a better term. You know, especially the the gut punch in the, the director's version of him ending it with, you know, shots from the, the 1967 Hong Kong riots, which is one of the other. They're, they're in both versions, actually. Oh, that, is it? That, okay. that, that montage of uh, um, one second photographs from uh, the various riots. Uh, um, they're in both versions. For some reason, I thought in the in the theatrical, it was different. It was different. But um, maybe more photos. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, well, I feel like maybe there's is there like maybe some different newspaper clippings or something in there. Either way, it doesn't matter. But, you know, it just escalates to the I think the only way it can. I, I think anything less than this kind of ending would feel disingenuous to the movie. And it, it, it doesn't turn into a, a um, scheduled or phoned-in action sequence that's uh, out of place for a film or anything. It, it's, it's this spiral and this uh, intersecting that has led to a showdown at uh, a cemetery. It wasn't meant to be a showdown at the cemetery. The, the kids uh, plan to, uh, to, to perish let's just say, at this point, uh, because they know there's uh, no turning back. They obviously can't fight back. They don't have that in them. The kids, the males, they don't have fight in them. When she has more more fight in her. It's nearly absurd that it never stops, but it's... uh, uh, As the fatalities at the cemetery rack up and increase in number and how violence goes down, it's so gnarly and enthralling and unexpected and gritty and as I said it's when I wince the most especially the surprising acts of body body damage I suppose uh, stray bullets and uh, it, technically it's uh, it's so uh, it, it, he achieves that tension Te- and technically it's a it's a kind of a slam dunk you just sit there on the edge of your seat and you're squeezing your squeezing you and holding everything holding everything in like it's a, is it ever going going to stop that this anger and it just leads to um the the worst possible outcomes i suppose uh it was never meant to um represent a sigh of relief or anything uh the the, the death of it all is the relief um and um I'm, I'm keeping it vague because if you do pursue it obviously this is something you want to watch um cold but um it it's it's mind-boggling that all of this came from the mind of Choi Hak, staged by 
Ching Zedong, we're, we're left with no no one to lean on afterwards. <laughs> Choi Hak do- doesn't uh, represent uh, comfort for us. Um, and uh, maybe it makes sense that there's no other way to turn after this but to, co- but to comedy. You know, even Ringo Lam did it, if you remember School on Fire, which is probably the second most shocking Hong Kong film of that uh, decade after after this one. After School on Fire, Ringo Lam made uh, Wild Search, which is uh, romantic and tender. Uh, combined with violence, yes, but romantic and tender. So, yeah, certainly as romantic and tender as you could expect Ringo Lamb to do. No, it still <laughs> has it still has Roy Chung being an absolute psychopath in it. But, uh, but yeah, no, no, and and I, I I agree. You know, the the I I like what you said that the breath is that this is over. Um, you know, that's it really isn't over because then you got the uh, photo montage of riots, meaning that. Oh, but Descent started earlier, and this wasn't the low point. It has continued. New decade, new anger. We're closer to uncertainty. Goodbye. No, I mean, the the only the only bright spot, if there is one, is that, uh, you know, these none of these particular characters will continue on being terrible people. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to keep it vague, but uh, but, you know, that's that's the only the only sense of of any kind of relief or release that you get from the movie is just well these particular people are done and and technically do you feel this is uh it's obviously not this precursor to john woo i don't think you can argue that it's a precursor to what was done in long arm of the law it's uh hong kong has done shootouts throughout the years but it's not really he's not a trendsetter here in terms of shootouts uh not in my estimation anyway because he's on a mission to depict this spiral it does involve automatic gun guns uh, and uh, gunfire but it's not this uh, first uh, little uh, spark of uh, hong kong cinema it just uh, it's so it's so wrapped in anger that it really can't be considered a trendsetter in my in my eyes uh, so it's a very very much on its own island no i agree you know i i'd I said earlier when I was trying to describe it that it's almost like a heroic bloodshed, but it, I don't, if people haven't seen it, I don't, it, it's, it's incredibly well choreographed as you'd expect from Ching Satong, but it's not. Yeah. Like I said, there's no romance here. There's no slow motion. There's no, any of the things that you sort of equate to that. There's no moments of heroism. It is, it is down and dirty and bloody and 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 violent uh, in ways that you're not expecting. Uh, you mentioned stray bullets. I won't elaborate on that, but that caught me off guard. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, speaking of wincing, like, oh, yeah, you know. And, and so, yes, it's. I don't. I think you're right. I don't really consider it. It's not stylish enough to be a trendsetter, even though it is. You know, it's Choi Hawk. It's incapable of of not being stylish, but it. It feels like the right ending for this movie, but I don't really see it, this type of final shootout working in a lot of other movies. Yeah, it's just so on its own in the in kind of the best of ways that it's it can't be part of a, a genre discussion necessarily. And uh, that's when hap- what happens with the, like the club and Long on the Law and obviously A Better Tomorrow and things like that. So, which uh, is we, we so ironic, by the way, like Better Tomorrow was singled out as this violent unacceptable peace for society we need ratings and you don't think of it as a confrontational film but 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 i think uh the violence had just been too bloody too long 
and they needed to single out a bloody film, even if not a socially conscious or angry film. Especially one that, you know, I mean, it was it was a perfect storm because it was also such a massive success. Yeah, right. Sure. So it's like now we can we can single out. It's like singling out a James Cameron movie. Right. We can single that out to say we need X, Y or Z. Um, would you you know, people, you have friends. <laughs> you would you be able to recommend this to anyone? Or it just had to come with sort of a preamble of, well, you need to be prepared for this and this and this and and this happens and it's angry and you need to be in a good headspace. And or when you start to list things, it kind of becomes impossible to, uh, like prerequisites. It kind of becomes impossible to recommend. You, I, I, I think you need to point the. Uh, Choi Hark enthusiasts, uh, uh, like a little bit, a little bit of elevated Choi Hark enthusiasts, to dangerous encounter. You can't casually turn people to um, to this one off the zoo. No, I. You know, it's funny. Uh, you said I have friends. Could I recommend all the friends that I would recommend this to have all already seen the movie? You okay, know, like, <laughs> like that's it, it. It is one of those things where it's like, I mean, a casual viewer, the animal cruelty alone is going to be a deal breaker uh for most people hell it was damn near a deal breaker for me uh but luckily you you know i knew going into to expect it but um i do apologize i should have remembered the cat scene i i, I felt really bad about that no it's fine no worries no worries you know it, it, it had the desired effect i mean it was a gut punch um it, and also i can confirm that uh i i I do not think that was a faked cat sound because all three of my cats came running into my office. Oh no. Yep. <laughs> yep. What's he doing to one of us? <laughs> yep. Yep. So, um, you definitely would have to have a lot of caveats. And I think there's a lot of people that I just wouldn't even bother recommending it to. There's just some movies that are like that. Some movies that you can consider brilliant and just, you know, I, I never really said my, I think my overall thought, I do consider this movie to be brilliant. I think it's absolutely jaw dropping. It's enthralling. And even in the direct uh, the theatrical version, it is easy to sort out once you realize the person's, uh, that he has added to to the thing. And because the, the Interpol stuff and the police stuff, it's weaker and it's forgettable, but the, the elements, the, the changed elements of the kids combined with the soldiers, makes for one full cohesive whole, despite the restructure being about adding the third element. You know what I mean? I can easily sort of tune out the Choi Hak, John, John Shum stuff, and, and still the power of the film is retained. You know, it, it, it doesn't sink it or anything uh, where it just uh, becomes tonally weird. No, for sure. For sure. If I didn't, if I had never seen the director's version or, or had no idea the director's version existed, I would still think it was a, it was a tremendous movie. I think the theatrical still, I think it, it, it gets 98% of the way there. And so if you have, if it's easier for you to find the theatrical version in whatever means you find old Hong Kong movies, uh, do not hesitate to watch that version. Uh, I I think the director's cut is superior uh, because I like that it's even meaner and even nastier. But uh, I think both both are terrific. But what I was originally saying is there are some movies that are brilliant that you just don't recommend to people that not everybody needs to see. Not everybody should see. They're not made for everybody. This movie is not made for everybody. I'm not sure this movie was made for anybody except for Choi Hawk. Yeah, that's very much uh, true. Or, or, or the people in a 
specific uh, time and place, and that's not our specific time and place. Yeah, but but uh, he probably, uh, as he hinted at, uh, he probably felt a little bit bad that he uh, emph- like re-emphasized all the horrible shit that is going on, and uh, that he he put that into film. It almost sounded like he felt a little bit a little bit bad that he put audiences through it, but um, he he's been about following his gut instinct. This was uh, one such example, and it needed to be uh, followed through on. And um, then you decide on, no, that's not me. I can't continue this way. Um, so he didn't desperately flee into comedy and special effects. It, he just realized that. I think I'm done for my sake and for the audience's sake. I think we're going to have some fun now. So let's make all the wrong clues, which is a very fun gangster comedy with some visual brilliance in it as well and then you have sue and uh, then he's off and running uh, to become most important trendsetter in hong kong cinema really uh, in terms of uh, revitalizing genres and uh, exploring technical elements that hong kong cinema simply hadn't so it, it's still amazing the, the, from detec- detective d back to sue and this existed I, I come back to that i find it hard to believe that this exists from and comes from the same man but it does it is definitely an outlier you know uh because we talked about we're going to eat you you can still see that the choi hawk in that right you can see the guy that would go on to make zoo uh and stuff like that but this is an outlier but i i get why he he didn't do it again either i i don't think as a director i don't I don't think you could maintain this level of anger for an entire career. Uh, I think one of two things would happen. You'd either burn out or you'd become a cliched edgelord, right? Who's just doing shock for shock's sake. Uh, But there is an authenticity to the anger in this movie that I just, I don't think you could maintain. I don't think you'd want to. The The closest I think has come since then, but it's not really comparable. But in tone and look, is probably the blade. Because yeah, he, he turned the wuxia world into um, to an ugly world after a few years of uh, high flying, fantastical, colorful stuff. But it's not. But it's not dangerous encounter too. Obviously, no, because at its core, the blade is still a heroic wuxia movie, right? You know, you still have Vincent Zhao kicking all sorts of ass in that movie there's there's still scenes of like hell yeah this is cool you know as as ugly as that movie is so it's still not i i agree with you i think that's the closest in his filmography but it's still not this i'm one of the the persons that kind of gets um yeah i i've seen this a fair amount of times so it's not uh, damaging to my psyche i'm not saying it damaged you anything but i keep coming back to it because i kind of want to reaffirm or reconfirm that does this really exist <laughs> does this Choi Hak really exist does this Choi Hak movie really exist well like in one place in time it did and then it was then it was no more <laughs> so yeah it's uh it's amazing uh okay uh, before we do the availability anything else you want to mention um any uh, any uh thing you want to highlight this so uh, no, I, I think we, I think I pretty much, I, I, we, I think we've covered everything and, and anything else that I'd want to highlight is going to get into, uh, a lot more specific spoilers and I don't want to do that. 
So as for availability, the only way to see this officially currently is on the French HK video, that's the name of the label, a DVD box set that also featured Butterfly Murders and they were going to eat you. It's, uh, it's uh, the, the name of the set in French is like Troy Hack's Trilogy of Chaos. Uh, so he, they gathered up these three movies uh, a fair amount of years ago, but uh, a very attractive box set. It's expensive secondhand, uh, but it's out there. It comes with a reconstructed original cut. Uh, mix, it mixes remastered footage with poor-looking VHS-sourced footage with uh, subtitles, but you can't really see them either. So uh, they obviously did optional subtitles uh, to make the VHS inserts um, uh, clearer. I mean, I can just imagine that this comes from like, maybe Choi Hak's own collection. He had a full version on tape. Yeah, that's so. When I was when I was researching before we recorded, yeah, he he actually, from what I could see, when they told him to re-edit it, he had a VHS commissioned of his director's cut, and that's that's all that exists. The original film elements are believed to be destroyed. So the his VHS, and it did come from his personal collection. This is all that exists out there. It's uh, it's thankfully in widescreen as well, so uh, the aspect ratio matches uh, between uh, between the different sources. Uh, we had the opt to watch both versions with custom English subtitles. Uh, the director's cut is on YouTube, uh, so with English subtitles, but you'll have to look that up yourself. I bought that set uh, like two years ago because I wanted to own it. I love the HK video releases. It just warms my heart that they treated Hong Kong cinema the way they did. Uh, but uh, someone donated a uh, version that they had put together that had custom English subtitles on both versions of the film, including for the uh, VHS-sourced sections with uh, blurrier subtitles. Uh, but uh, as of this recording, the French label Spectrum has announced this title for Blu-ray. But uh, the only thing I can confirm is that it won't have English subtitles because uh, they simply don't feature it or have the rights to do so. But I don't know at the time of recording what content will be on the Blu-ray disc from Spectrum, if they will feature both cuts, if they, for some miraculous reason, have better-looking footage from the director's version, or if they will do, and I will guess this will be it, if they will put the HD version of the theatrical version on there as the main edit and then present the director's version Either in standard definition, remastered footage combined with the VHS sourced uh, scenes, or they will do HD footage for as long as they can and then insert the VHS quality footage uh, when applicable. That's what I'm guessing. But who knows at this point? I would be, it would be lovely if for some reason someone located film elements. But uh, don't be surprised if uh, the director's version is going to be a mishmash of uh, elements. And when you have English subtitles uh, alongside it and uh, realize what the deal is, there's no problem accepting uh, the jumps in quality at all. And the footage is clear enough, thanks to the addition again of English, English subtitles, but it isn't this um, blurry mess or anything. So it's fine. The reason we've been able to talk about it in very specific ways is because it looks fine in the context um, of it all, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought it looked fine. And in fact, in a lot of ways, because of how much nastier the the director's version is, I, I thought the grainy 
VHS actually added a little bit of a vibe uh, to uh, an additional layer of vibe to the movie uh, that that worked for me um, because you know basically anytime it switches to VHS it's nasty shit that had to get cut out so it, it, it works to have that extra layer of grit to it but it would be no chance in hell to get or to read all the subtitles originally they're very blurry so so thankfully again this version had uh, subtitles for uh, for the added scenes and um, all of that so it would have been impossible uh, as a matter of fact yeah and actually the the first the first time it cuts to it the first subtitle is just like a a little bit late coming in and so i it first popped up and i was like oh man i'm not going to be able to read these and then the 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 redone subtitle popped up and i'm like oh oh thank god okay because <laughs> i was like am i gonna have to like break out a magnifying glass here like yeah it, it they're they're bad we'll see what happens with its uh home uh, uh, home video life but um this um, i'm happy with the way things are now owning that set is a joy I, I, uh, the butterfly murders and we're going to eat you were released on dvd in hong kong so i put those discs into the uh, into the trilogy box set i bought and uh, and uh, all of that uh, uh, dangerous encounter was a two disc edition because they, they placed the cuts on different uh, discs uh, has an interview with Choi hark and also presents the deleted footage in the same uh, interview piece and um, uh, there's also an interview with, with uh, lolit on one of the discs uh, but it's more of a general interview rather than specifically about dangerous encounter so there it is uh, so uh, we, we've done all the wrong clues, me and uh, my co-hosts and certainly Sue and uh, Aces Go Places, Our Man from Bond Street and all of those uh, happier pieces. Uh, but at one time, at one point in the podcast coverage, we'll need to tackle Peking Opera Blues. So maybe you and I will return to do Peking Opera Blues, so one of his most beloved films that I've um, not talked of for quite a number of years. So. I would love to come back and talk Peking Opera Blues because I I love that movie. Like I, f- I found a nihilistic cut of Peking Opera Blues. They killed two rats and two cats. No! <laughs> <laughs> you were done. You had moved on. Excellent. Well, uh, perhaps we'll uh, reconvene them when uh, we reach uh, that stage of his um, of his uh, filmography. Happier times with uh, Choyak ahead, I suppose. Uh, okay, okay. Thank you, Michael, for taking the time, uh, taking the plunge, and uh, I hope uh, hope the showers uh, showers after the viewing of both cuts uh, cleansed you physically and mentally, and uh, you unclenched in general. And I hope your cats are okay. If I have a sec. Yes, my cats are okay. They are. They are. They are not traumatized. So like, they're are okay. we safe in this house or not? <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was really interesting to see them all come running in. But uh, yeah. Uh, they're good. They're they're. You they're won't just... be screening men behind the sun anytime soon in uh, in God, the household. No. no, no, not for them. No, they're they're <laughs> not they're not into that. Yeah, that's like the uh, another one of those eighties uh, staples of. Uh, at least I can recommend the film as a film, but it's hard to recommend it to people because it's so damn hard to watch. Yeah, it's one that I watched. It's one of those that I watched it once, and that was good enough for me. I, I don't ever need to revisit that movie again. Um, this one I would revisit and probably will revisit. Uh, but Men Behind the Sun, I don't I don't ever need to revisit. I don't blame you. Uh, okay, okay. Thank you again, Michael, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, why don't you f- throw out the plug for a the A4E podcast? Again, you can find us on Twitter at A4E Podcast. You can find us at Linktree slash A4E Podcast. And we are on 
any podcast app of choice, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all of those. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm going to leave it, uh, leave it there. We've already done your uh, our plugging and uh, your co-host of honor. So uh, let's uh, leave it there. So let's uh, sign off and, um, and in the future move on to happier Choi Hawk uh, stuff. So uh, I'm Kenny B. With me was Michael Scott of the A4E podcast. Happier times. Bye, Kenny. Yeah.